Most of the characters in my series have such a great appeal. Appeal of struggle, of people involved in a struggle. And if you're involved in history and in Negro history, I think it's inevitable that you would be fascinated by the life of Harriet Tubman. How he's been involved with the semi-cubist approaches to painting and always, I think, recurring were these much more personal themes or things out of memory or race memory or whatever. Do you think that the Negro should now direct his efforts to the black community, that is, by exhibiting exclusively in black communities, colleges, universities, etc.? Well, I don't think that this should be exclusively done. But since a little of it has been done before, I think that some effort should be, or a great deal of effort should be made in this uh, direction uh, to uh, make the uh, communities, to use uh, the cliche, more art conscious or more aware of the uh, Negro artist. Hello, and welcome to Articulated. I'm Dolores Perry, and I work as the administrative officer here at the Archives of American Art. This podcast receives support from the Alice L. Walton Foundation. Romare Bearden and Jacob Lawrence were two tremendous storytellers who dedicated themselves to saving and sharing voices of the past to build a new future. Through painting, collage, and illustration in a range of venues, each artist forged a singular style while emboldening generations to come. In this episode, we'll hear from their 1968 oral histories for the archives, which took place at a fraught socio-political juncture in the United States just months after the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1968 and the assassinations of Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert F. Kennedy. Lawrence and Bearden first met each other working and studying at the Harlem Community Arts Center in the late 1930s, which was part of the Federal Arts Project. Under the direction of Augusta Savage, the center was a major hub for artists across New York and an incubator for graphic innovation during the Harlem Renaissance. To hear more about the Federal Arts Project and its lasting impact, Go back to the first four episodes of season one. Romare Bearden was born in Charlotte, North Carolina in 1911, before his family moved to Pittsburgh and New York, eventually settling in the latter. He found his own style amid the shifting seas of the early 20th century, as he digested cubism and social realism to generate expressive, figurative paintings and collages. He worked with myth in a grand sense recasting the story of African Americans through Homer's Odyssey for his Odysseus series, or more intimately in his depictions of jazz clubs and Harlem nightlife. In his 1968 oral history interview with the curator and critic Henry Ghent, Bearden dove into his early career in New York City. And then after I finished uh, college, I went to study with George Groats at the Osteros League. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, Groats was the uh, great German artist who did the famous book, Ecce Homo. Mm-hmm. It's recently been republished. Mm-hmm. 
and he was a, a marvelous draft. And when I got to studying with Groves, unlike the other students who usually were very tight, I would draw all over the paper. <laughs> and Groves uh, told me, now, look, I want you to take and just draw the model's hand. Maybe just a face, or just do the whole paper and draw it here. Because I want you to really observe. And this is what I did. And I spent a couple of years studying with growths. And then I did watercolor. In the meantime, I'd never painted in oil. Mm. And uh, when I finished studying with growths, I drew around the house. And I, I got a job as a political cartoonist. Uh, with the Afro-American, which was uh, well-known to go newspaper out of Baltimore. Mm -hmm. And I did for a couple, two or three years a political cartoon. Mm -hmm. And Groats, in the meantime, had introduced me to a number of the great draftsmen of the past, like Ang, Holbein, Dura. And with my interest in cartooning, I, uh, I became intimate with Daumier and Foran and some of the other great uh, satirical uh, draftsmen. Then I became more and more interested in uh, painting and gradually gave up my uh, cartooning uh, to concentrate uh, mostly on painting because I felt uh, that if I went too long into uh, a cartooning, you know, it would hurt uh, my painting. Mm -hmm. And I got a studio. I ran into Jacob Lawrence on the street one day who said that he had a studio and there was one vacant above uh, where he was, had his studio and also living on East 100, at 33 uh, West 125th Street. So I, I went and got this studio, my first studio, $8 a month, including uh, electricity cheap enough. And I, we first had steam heat and then later the landlord sold all the radiators one day with scrap iron. Because Japan was no daily before the war was buying all the uh, metal that they could. And then we had to heat the heat kerosene with stoves after that. And beside Jake, I mean Jacob Lawrence, Claude McKay had a place there. He was in front of Jake, you know, the famous uh, poet and uh, writer. And then there was uh, Bill Attaway, who stayed there for a while. He was another writer, and in recent years has done a number of things for Belafonte. You know, I think he wrote the, one of the Belafonte's last things on mm -hmm. Negro comedy or humor. Then the uh, late Alan Morrison, uh, who was the, one of the editors of Ebony, had a place there, and actually, they formulated, he and George Norfolk formulated the idea for Negro Digest, which later broadened out into Ebony. So it was an interesting uh, building. But there I was. When you're a young student, you have a lot of ideas and things to express. And I was trying to be very precise in my uh, drawing. Later one day, one day uh, uh, Bill Attaway said to me, you know, why don't you draw... You know, just let yourself go and draw some of the things that you know about. And I began at that time to do uh, my subtlety. You know, the people that I had uh, seen as a young boy when I sometimes visit North Carolina, 
where I was born. And I did these on brown paper in a, in a gouache or temporal medium. Uh, I must have done about 20 of these uh, paintings uh, before uh, World War II when I uh, went into the army. And uh, just about the end of the war, a painter uh, came by my studio, William H. Johnson, a very well known at that time. And Johnson had lived in Europe for many years. And he came by with a woman named Caress Crosby. And uh, Caress also, she had, uh, was one of the uh, well-known American expatriates of the 20s. And she had a printing press or a press in Paris at one time, a book publisher with her husband, uh, who was a well-known banker and writer and poet, Harry Crosby, a later committed suicide. Caress had opened a gallery in Washington called the G Place Gallery. And she was thinking of a show, doing a show of Negro artists. And she uh, came by with uh, Johnson. And she decided that she wanted to do a one-man show of my work. And well, that was my really first gallery show at Caress Crosby's Gallery in 1945 uh, in Washington, D.C. And then I got out of the Army um, about a couple of months, the war was coming to an end, or was at an end. And I met Caress in New York, and we went by a uh, gallery, the Samuel Coots Gallery, because Coots was just uh, opening his gallery. Uh, he had been interested in art and uh, I think was doing something else, uh, writing uh, advertising for a moving picture company. But he felt that he really wanted, his ambition was to open his own art gallery. And he had opened a gallery and uh, later, uh, his first idea, I think, was to have some of the uh, leading American painters. And then when Peggy Guggenheim closed her gallery, it's changed his idea to have the younger painters who were doing more uh, abstract work. Jacob Lawrence was born in Atlantic City, New Jersey, in 1917, and made his career in New York. He was a chronicler of African-American experience, and he was known for a series of paintings that interrogated history. His migration series, Some 60 Paintings, has received special acclaim for grappling with the story of the Great Migration, which was the mass movement of African-Americans out of the South to escape racial oppression and violence. In his 1968 oral history interview with the historian and Smithsonian curator Carol Green, Lawrence described the art historical context in which he saw himself. A note on the audio, as was customary at the time, the archives returned the original tapes to Lawrence after he approved this transcript and did not maintain copies. 
Nehemiah Harvey, an advancement associate at the archives, will serve as the voice of Lawrence for this episode. Yes, I think I was influenced by many of the artists, influenced most of us at that period, my age group. I think the big school then in the social consciousness school of painting was the Mexican school, Orozco Rivera Sequeros, who was still living and still very active. This is the big three of Mexico. Of course, Sequeros was the youngest of the big three, and the others have died, of course, both Rivera and Orozco. Also, we were exposed to people like Kathy Kolwitz, the Polish artist, many of the Chinese artists who were doing big wood blocks. They were doing peasants and that type of thing. And all was their choice of content, of people, and I guess this made it social. And this permeated all of the arts of that period with the aid of the writing, literature, and everything. It was a period when a man did his native son. I'm trying to think of some other, not Hemingway. Who did the Okies? John Steinbeck, The Grapes of Wrath. And in the dance, this was the material of the dance. So I'm really a product of this period. Some artists have done other things since then, especially those of my age who started out like this. Some of them became very important abstract expressionists like Gorky before he died, but not frequently. I think Franz Klein, they were very much involved with this. I don't know about some of the others, but I do know these two. And then many of the artists were involved in this kind of content in their work. This was the period for dealing with the very humanistic. We thought about men. I mentioned Romar Bearden and how he studied with George Gross. We all knew who George Gross was. He was the great German expressionist and satirist of post-war Germany. This is what he dealt with, this kind of satire. Lawrence went on to describe the foundational research for his paintings and the importance of making history visible as part of his work for a children's book called Harriet and the Promised Land. Most of the characters in my series have such a great appeal. Appeal of struggle, of people involved in a struggle. And if you're involved in history and in Negro history, I think it's inevitable that you would be fascinated by the life of Harriet Tubman. This is how I happened to do that. Now, the second time, the book to which you've just referred, I was approached by a publisher, a new publisher who said he was interested in doing children's books. And he wanted to know if I would be interested in doing one. He left the subject up to me. We had a few talks. We met for lunch and talked over the theme and so on. And immediately I thought of me doing a Negro subject because he knew that I had been involved in this, that I was interested in this. Although he did not say that this must be my theme, he left that up to me. But I think he knew this would be it. So then we talked over the theme. I suggested Harriet Tubman. Well, of course, he knew nothing about Harriet Tubman. And I gave him a sort of synopsis, an outline of this woman. He said it sounded very good to him and to go on with it. 
So I started my research because although I knew the general outline, the general story, this was a period of 25 years since I had done the first Harriet Tubman. So naturally, I had to go back. And even if I had known what I knew 25 years ago about Harriet Tubman, it would have been different. Because I like to feel that I've grown, my attitude would have been different. My choice of material out of the life of Harriet Tubman would have been entirely different. So I researched the material, took many notes. As most of us who do research, we know that nine-tenths of what we take is never used, but we have to take all of it in order to get that one-tenth. So this was the process. And out of this developed a children's book on Harriet Tubman, which is just out, has just been published. The Industrial Revolution was part of the American series. It was a series which was to be continued, which I've never gotten around to continue as a series. My reason for doing this, I think I mentioned earlier, was that I like to think that I've expanded, that I've grown, and I like to feel that the Negro struggle was unique. And of course, all struggle from my point of view. You see, early maybe I didn't think Maybe I thought the Negro struggle was unique. And, of course, all struggles are unique in that when and where they take place, they have a uniqueness. But generally, I think it's all one. Now, I thought of the American history thing. In fact, I call it the struggle. And one of the motivating factors for my doing this again was the Negro. I think this is happening more and more now. But up until that time, as late as a few years ago in the 1950s, the Negro had not been included in the general stream of American history. We're doing that more and more now. There are more books coming out. People are more aware of it. And there's a more conscious effort to put the Negro back where he belongs in American history. I mean, up till now, he's been taken out, just excluded or put aside. We don't know the story, how historians have glossed over the Negro's part as one of the builders of America, how he tilled the fields and picked cotton and helped to build the cities. Now, I don't want to be sentimental and say, well, the Negro did all this. The Negro did nine-tenths of this. This wouldn't be true either. I mean, there were many other groups coming from Europe who contributed. However, these other groups always get mentioned. The Polish, the Italians, the English, they're all mentioned as to their contributions. When I was a child, this is all I heard of. All we hear of the American Negro is that he picked cotton. And they don't even call it a contribution. That wasn't even it. So one of my main reasons I thought it would be a good thing if I did Plus, the fact I think American history is a fascinating subject. But I wanted to do a series showing the American Revolution. Again, this had to do with struggle. The struggle of man 
and showing as part of the struggle a person who took part in the struggle of man and showing as part of the struggle a person who took part in the struggle was the American Negro. You see, this is not a Negro as the other things were. This was not a Negro series. It isn't just Negroes. It dealt with Washington crossing the Delaware. Negroes who were with Washington when he crossed the Delaware. Not as slaves. These people were people who had signed up to take part in the American Revolution. I mean, you have people like that. That's what's fascinating about the Schumburg Library. We not only know that Negroes participated in the American Revolution, but we know the names of these people. We can go there and find the actual names of people who enlisted in the American Revolution. You always have people who served as the officer's servants. Well, they had to go. That was a different thing. But I'm talking about people who went voluntarily, signed up like anyone else and served in this thing. So you have that. They were with Jackson at New Orleans, the Negro was. And of course, we all know about the beginning of the revolution. All through the 1800s, the Industrial Revolution was all a part of this thing. You know, we oftentimes mention women. We hear about Molly Pitchard. We hear about Betsy Ross. We hear about this woman. We hear about the other woman. And that was the reason, too, why, to get back to Harriet Tubman, the Negro woman was never included in American history. Has never been. Well, naturally, because we don't even include Negro men. So I think a person like Harriet Tubman is a, well, just a fascinating person. I can't say more than that. But this was the motivating factor for my doing the American history thing and for my still being interested in that. Speaking at a critical moment in the nation's trajectory, Bearden described the inseparability of the arts, politics, and society. So uh, how do you feel about the upcoming election? Well, I was uh, extremely interested until Senator Kennedy was shot. Mm. And I don't know, uh, you know, if it's the same old uh, uh, tired fire horses that they're going to offer. Mm. I would be uninterested again. Mm -hmm. Uh, not in the election, but in in the uh, in maybe the candidate choice of candidates. Yeah, that's right. I take it that you uh, felt that he did indeed have something very uh, meaningful to offer. Well, I think that he had uh, uh, King was shot, and now Kennedy. You know, a lot of the people, um, Negro people, you know, felt that he was you know one of their last hopes. And I think that uh, he did. He had caught uh, something of the uh, resonance and uh, flavor of the uh, Negro Four. Speaking of the so-called uh, Negro problem in, in America, have you ever encountered uh, racial prejudice as a black artist? No, you mean particular uh, of prejudice of some aspect, or you mean prejudice in the world of art? How do you mean that? Uh, 
prejudice in the world of art? Well, my feeling is, I wouldn't say I think, my feeling is that it is there, but not say a direct prejudice or sign saying, well, look, don't come into this gallery or don't do this. So we don't take Negroes in because Negroes artists are in many of the uh, galleries. But I think the uh, prejudice may be an oblique one. Mm -hmm. Let me explain what I mean. Uh, the uh, Negro artist is usually not in the, uh, of what you might say, on the scene. He's mm -hmm. not moving where a number of the uh, better known artists, the white artists are. I was in the archives building Thursday when I was there, I saw a photograph and lists of Rauschenberg and Marisol and a number of the artists around him. It must have been at some exhibition at a museum and were no Negroes there, no Negroes in this group. So in that sense, you know, he, you know, you have to ask a, uh, a white artist or a critic, or who are the Negroes? You know, the Negro artists, he might know a friend, but the fact that a Negro are making a scene or his compatriot, he doesn't think so. You know, it's just maybe not being his conscious. It's like I was talking to a critic, Irving Sandler, on a radio program once. He was, had been to the meetings of this uh, club on 8th Street. And he said, now that I think of it, I, I never saw any uh, nickel artist there. And now that I think of it, too, he said, I wonder why, you know, someone didn't invite some or make sure that, you, you know, you might have had a different point of view mm -hmm. from them. You, you follow what I mean? Sure. Uh, the art critics, I read a number of art books, the history of American painting, and very, uh, it's it's very seldom that Negro artists are mentioned. For instance, in my opinion, Henry Otana is one of the four or five great American painters. And you never see his name mentioned, you know, in the uh, Barbara Rose's uh, latest book on painting from 1900 to the uh, present. Mm -hmm. Nowhere is Tanner, he's a better painter uh, than Glockens mm -hmm. or Prendergast. Mm -hmm. Especially his uh, late paintings, late uh, paintings he did in the late in the twenties and late thirties, mm -hmm. small things of which Mert Simpson has a number. Mm -hmm. uh, only Rualt is comparable. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Your projection paintings uh, are certainly uh, your last. Well, show. Uh, maybe this question that you raised about this uh, uh, thing of prejudice. In there, or maybe we can amplify that rather than leaving mm -hmm. this. Uh, I don't think when I mentioned the Barbara Rose writing the book, I don't think she did it out of anything. Well, I'm prejudiced. I'm not mm -hmm. going to mention mm -hmm. it. It is just not in the consciousness. Mm -hmm. you, you'll follow what I mean of a lot of the uh, people who are writing these things. Why do you think this is so? I couldn't give a definite answer. Now, I think that the uh, Negroes themselves you know, have to encourage or be the same interest in the artists as they might have in, in, in Negro basketball, baseball players, or uh -huh. are now in politics mm -hmm. and the rest of the thing. This has to be pushed the, uh, the same way. Just like I made the statement about Tanner, uh, maybe that would call uh, someone's attention to mm -hmm. that, and they would really mm -hmm. look into what this man uh, accomplished. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, so, uh, the same thing El Greco 
remained forgotten for three or four hundred years until uh, around the turn of this century when he was, uh, you know, rediscovered as one of the, you know, great uh, uh, masters of Baroque painting. And so it's the uh, same, nor is the Negro ever equated with many of the paintings that I've mentioned. Uh, abstract Expressionism was one of the, uh, in the archives of this uh, a magazine that they gave me. They said, Fiery America Arrives in the Abstract Expressionist painting. But no one, you stop to think, has ever equated Abstract Expressionism as a movement with jazz music mm -hmm. based on improvisation, mm -hmm. rhythms, the personal involvement. All of it is part of the uh, the jazz experience. Mm -hmm. Many of the abstract expressionists would often play jazz music while they were painting, uh, or at least were very interested in that art form. But there is an effort, and I imagine that they grow critics themselves, or as they get into it, are going to have to explore this and show, or you know, open up these uh, uh, new dimensions to people. As is common with a great many artists, uh, uh, you have um, gone from one particular style to another. And in more recent years, I believe that you've concentrated on a subject matter that was uh, more or less directed uh, to the Negro experience. How mm -hmm. do you uh, account for that? Well, uh, one, what I arrived at after time was a space. And after I got a certain space, that hasn't changed. That hasn't changed so much. But just one day, some of these people that I had dealt with previously began to come on the campus. You know, uh, of a life, just like I said, the gypsy life was passive. Well, a lot of the lives that I knew in certain rural Negro surroundings is passing too. And I set down some of my impressions of that life. It's not only historic, but in a certain uh, a, a sense uh, historical, historical, and has certain affinities with many classical things that have happened before. For instance, I used to know a lady in Maryland where a grandfather of mine had a, a church and this lady, I made watermelon cake. And I don't know where she had gotten these uh, kind of baking pans from, from her mother or whether she had made them. I was too young to think about that at the time. But anyway, she made this kind of a red cake inside of the cake like a watermelon. And she cut out chocolate seeds and put into this red batter. That over that would be baked a white batter. And then over that, the striped green and white of the watermelon. Well, this was iced. And you stand about five or six foot, and she'd swear that she was looking at a watermelon. <laughs> and on weekends, the wealthy people in Lutherville would order these watermelon cakes. And sometimes you know, I'd be visiting, you know, and then go to Pittsburgh or stay there a month or so. I would be in Lutherville and I would deliver the cakes for this lady. And her husband was a famous guitar player, folk singer, like uh, 
Ryan Lemon Jefferson or Slide Steele. And uh, they used to play in the uh, Baltimore, you know, before they moved out to this place. Sometimes he'd go along with me just for a walk and hold on to me or to the wagon. And they'd walking down the country roads and then he knew everybody's business. And when people saw him coming, they would kind of run because he always had a dream. They would say, oh, Mrs. Jones, you know, I went last night. I saw you just laying in that coffin, just as plain. Nobody wanted to hear him. So there he was, and he'd be strumming on his guitar. So this was a kind of like out of a Greek play. You were leading the blind soothsayer. You know, as a, a little boy leads him in, you know, and he makes a dire prediction for the city. And this had some of this uh, elements in it. If you equate a lot of the things that happened in Negro life, you see that it's a continuity with many of the great classical things that have happened before. And uh, this is what I tried to find in my work, this connoting of this connotation of uh, many of the things that have happened to me are uh, uh, with the great classical things of the past. Bearden and Lawrence were both taught by Charles Henry Austin, another leading painter in Harlem who supervised New Deal murals in the late 1930s. In his 1968 oral history with painter Al Murray, Austin talks about the then-emergent legacy of the federal arts programs and the development of his two former students in a new art world. We were all involved because we were involved in other ways with the social realism of the 30s, because many of us, if not most of us, as a matter of fact, were on one or the other of the art projects. I happened to be on the mural project, so I was particularly aware of the Orozco's and the Rivera's. As a matter of fact, I used to go down to uh, Radio City when Rivera was painting the one they destroyed, and between his broken English and my broken French, uh, we managed to to communicate. I was very much influenced by his mural work. And uh, a great number of the painters on the projects in New York, most of us were members of the Artists' Union, uh, which was an organization, uh, I suppose, which would now be considered a left-wing organization of its day. But it dealt with the problems of the artists and uh, kept the federal projects on, on its toes about providing for the artists and raising standards and whatnot. You couldn't escape the, the social implications of painting then. I think most of us went through that stage where we did an amount of social realism. Right. I, that, it seems to me that there's an interesting comparison or contrast somewhere in this particular statement, or that could be extended from this statement, and what we were talking about a little while ago. Those Negro painters who were being influenced by Siqueiros, by the social realism of the period, were not escaping blackness. Or they were very much concerned with projecting black experience, wasn't it? It was in terms of proletarian thinking, maybe. No, I don't think so. I think they were more or less interested in doing 
in doing good painting. I think that the blackness element was there. How can I say that? I think the, the only painter that I remember who was consistently concerned this way in a very deep and emotional way, I would say was Jake Lawrence. Mm -hmm. And his awareness of, of his immediate environment has, has been a constant thing in, in his mm -hmm. painting. And in a very fresh, dramatic way. I think in, in the painting of Bearden, for instance, uh, his early painting was pretty much in terms of searching as any other artist was, was searching. You'd experiment with what was going on in Europe. You, you borrowed from Picasso, you borrowed from here, you borrowed from there. Uh, you were interested in, in, in good painting and you were interested in, in, in keeping up or knowing what the contemporary developments were and exploring them. Now, just by virtue of being what you are and living the experience you're living, I think your subject matter tends to be that with which you are most familiar. Mm -hmm. But I think that was incidental. I don't think it was, it was a, a, in terms of a conscious projection of a, of, a, of a racial thing. I think later with Bearden, it got, it got to be. I have one of those early paintings too where he, after, we, we both made a trip south one year, and I think we were very much impressed with the rural southern scene. And Romy came back and did a, a, a series of very large washes on brown paper uh, that, uh, well, did you see his last exhibition? Yes. Uh, it's, it's almost come full circle. These things had the same quality in a more contemporary aspect that these early paintings I'm talking about here. Mm -hmm. I'll show you one of those before you go. It's, it's very interesting. If you haven't seen how close it is, these were more literal, conventionally figurative. I don't mean that they were academic in any, any, mm -hmm. any way at all. Mm -hmm. But uh, the same feeling, the same preoccupations are in his last show. And I think this, is, that this last show of his is the one that comes closer to touching what has really been the reality of his experience or the reality of his, of his reactions, let's say, not his experience. I mean, I, let's face it, none of us have had too much of that experience actually as experience. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, it, it, from an artistic point of view, uh, of what we're very much concerned with is, of course, the increasing sophistication and complexity of his language as a painter. So, yes. that he, so he's getting nearer to himself. That's right, that's right. Process. This is the thing we were talking about earlier. Yeah. That's the key. Mm -hmm. uh, we, are, we are very different kinds of painters. Romy has had, well, not as much as, say, Jake. Now, Jake has had, I think, the most consistent line in his way of any of the, uh, of the painters we're talking about, I know. Uh, Romy has explored. Romy is, a, is, is some parts of an intellectual. I remember one, one year he uh, spent almost a year just copying old masters. Not for the sake of copying old masters, but find out what they had and how they designed. And I think he found it very fruitful. Uh, he's been involved with the semi-cubist uh, approaches to painting. Uh, and always, I think, recurring were these much more personal themes or things out of memory or race memory or whatever, uh, they would recur too.
Bearden developed his own graphic language and collage, cutting out images from magazines and newspapers to use as building blocks in complex pictures. For him, the form evolved from and in response to cultural currents. Now, I think that one of the, some of the things that underlie my process is a photographic image when it's taken out of its original context and put in a different space than, than you saw it in a magazine, uh, uh, can have another meaning entirely. And uh, then uh, a work of art is not life itself. There's a certain artificiality about it. And by cultivating the artificiality, or in other words, by cultivating what is art, you make what you're doing seem more real. And so while my uh, initial thing has been one of shock, as we've mentioned to a lot of people, I think that other people who, upon reflection, have found a great deal of artistic uh, merit in the work. And uh, a great deal of uh, a social uh, moving often other than what I'd actually attempted to uh, put into my work itself. Lawrence concluded his interview on an optimistic note when asked about the possibilities for Black artists in the United States. Oh, definitely. I definitely think so. This overlaps, too. I think that generally artists should have this attitude, and I think definitely that the Negro artist should not feel because he happens to be Negro or because the person who aspires to an art career should not have a positive attitude towards this. I definitely think so. I mean, art has always been a difficult thing in our time, whether the artist be Negro or otherwise, and I think it's part of our maturing. It's part of our growth that we can step into something or aspire to an area which is not always rosy. It's not always an ideal situation but we can aspire to it like anyone else. The same aspirations and so on. I don't think that that's exactly true now, but I think it's surely more so than it was 50 years ago. And Bearden spoke about the importance of intentionally cultivating historical awareness and community, identifying with the socially conscious and engaged approach of 19th century French painter Gustave Courbet. Do you think that the Negro should now direct his efforts to the black community, that is, by exhibiting exclusively in black communities, colleges, universities, etc.? Well, I don't think that this should be exclusively done. But since a little of it has been done before, I think that some effort should be, or a great deal of effort should be made in this uh, direction uh, to uh, make the uh, communities, to, to use uh, the cliché, more art-conscious or more aware of the uh, Negro artist. 
And I think that this will in time make for a better artist. And then uh, by doing this, the artist can learn some of the feelings of the community about his work. To make an artist, you need many hands. And all working together can uh, 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 make for something very meaningful. Uh, because, uh, let's say, the, in the 1920s or, or the artists of the 19th century were not, uh, you might say, Negro artists at all. These were people who were Negroes and artists. Or most of them lived abroad. And their work was directed not to Negroes primarily or with them or with a Negro in mind, but it's directed like the other American artists to the uh, patrons mm-hmm. of the, uh, mm-hmm. the art. This is what I mentioned in a previous, in, the, in our interview about Courbet. You know, he thought about these things and to whom uh, his work would be directed. So I think, uh, and something, something about the social responsibilities of Ahit. Mm-hmm. This was a uh, consideration of this man. And I think that uh, this is why, in, in a way, I revere Courbet. Mm-hmm. And I think, certainly, I think this is part of the thing that the Negro artist has to do. And with that, I don't think the Negro community then should be exposed to just Negro artists by that, that they'll begin to be involved in all of art, that they will see Egyptian art, that they would be acquainted then with African sculpture, and, you know, involved in a number of artistic experiences. This podcast is produced by Ben Gillespie and Michelle Herman at the Archives of American Art. It was edited by the team at Better Lemon Creative Audio. Our music comes from Sound and Smoke, performed by the Peabody Wind Ensemble with Harlan Parker conducting. For show notes, works cited, and additional resources, visit aaa.si.edu slash articulated. A special thank you goes to Nehemiah Harvey for being the voice of Jacob Lawrence. If you enjoy Articulated, please consider rating and sharing it. The Archives of American Art at the Smithsonian Institution is a nonprofit organization that relies on donations from individuals like you to sustain our ongoing operations and special programs like Articulated. To support our work, please visit aaa.si.edu slash support. Thank you.